0: Hello and welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele.
1: I am Joey Boudreau.
0: And
2: I'm Sarah Blakeborn.
1: And today we'll be talking about a medical milestone in HIV donation. We'll be hearing from the first living kidney donor, HIV to HIV, and her physician.
0: Oh my goodness, that and so much more here on The Gifted Life. Let's get to it. All right, here on the Gifted Life, we are talking about a medical milestone, and we are so excited to introduce you to our guest, Miss Nina Martinez. Hey, Nina. Hey, everyone. We are celebrating you, what you've done. We want to talk about this, but Joey, talk about this medical milestone. What
1: happened? It's it's not only a medical milestone in the donation world; it's a medical milestone in healthcare in general. Yeah. The fact that uh, Miss Nina here is the first living. HIV-to-HIV HIV kidney transplant. Yes. Unbelievable.
0: She is a, a living donor, uh, the first HIV-to-HIV HIV kidney transplant with a living donor. You're 35, Nina, and you just went out and said, I want to make a difference, which is what we talk about here on the podcast, one person making a difference. You have gotten our attention. So talk about this want to do more um, and to help, help your world.
3: I mean, I think it's very common for a lot of living donors to embark on this journey of donation because they know somebody who needs a kidney. So I'm not unusual in that way. Uh, My ask for a kidney came from a friend who didn't ask me specifically for a kidney. He just posted on Facebook that he was in kidney failure and needed a kidney. And this was actually an idea I had about donating because I knew that it was legal. You guys have had episodes about the HOPE Act. I knew it was legal for me to donate, and I knew that I was just as healthy as a former neighbor of mine who donated a kidney. So she is the medical reporter for Fox 5 Atlanta. And I saw what she went through because she shared her story with her viewers. And I thought to myself, you know what? I bet I'm just as healthy as she is. And this mm. was uh, about three years, four years ago, actually. June 9th is her anniversary So it was a number of years before m- my friend said that he had a need for a kidney. So I was just waiting for an opportunity to which to... I guess, manifest my donation decision because everybody was really excited about the HOPE Act. But to me, when I learned about it, I was 30 years old and was not very excited about signing up (laughs) on the deceased to get my um, little heart on my identification. i just was not exciting to me, but living donation that was a little bit more exciting because I get to stick around for that.
0: Mm-hmm. There you go. We'll there cut you, you some go. slack
1: on that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I said I, I have so many questions. All right, so um, so your friend, uh, so you you said you. He was asking for a kidney. So tell us how that all went. You weren't able to donate to him, right?
3: Not not eventually. So he had just posted on Facebook that, you know, he was in kidney failure and he needed a kidney. And I remember this, this was around 4th of July weekend last year, and I wasn't doing anything. And again, this was something I had thought about doing for a number of years because I knew that it was legal, but... Um, when I asked local physicians about this possibility in 2015 here in Atlanta, a lot of them said, you know, we don't think that it's going to happen. There's too many concerns about what happens to the remaining kidney and people living with HIV because the virus itself can cause kidney disease. The medication is used to treat HIV, particularly the older ones can cause kidney disease. Like we, we don't know. We're not optimistic that this is going to happen and Then they said, you know, you could sign up for the Georgia registry. And I was like, (laughs) woohoo, you know. um, And so just again, Fourth of July weekend, that's when I read my friend's post And so knowing that I had wanted to do this, had asked around, um, had actually was inspired by an episode of Grey's Anatomy, uh, season 10, (laughs) episode 19 for you Grey's Anatomy
1: fans, (laughs)
3: um, does have the first HIV to HIV uh, living donor kidney transplant Recommended. They did actually a pretty good job. I know that there have been other episodes of Grey's Anatomy where maybe they shouldn't have passed the <laughs> psychologic <laughs> evaluation. But uh, that particular Hope transplant episode that, that was inspired um, is actually very good. So I Googled, had nothing to do. Googled, saw that Johns Hopkins was the first transplant center that proved to attempt living kidney donation. So I reached out to them and said, you know, how do I get evaluated? And that's kind of how that all started. And wow.
1: And, and so, you know, as you found out, which is something that that quite so many others have found out before the, the, the donation process isn't that simple. Uh, There (laughs) are so many things that you've got to go through. And then from a matching standpoint, uh, it's not just matching, you know, a size or blood type. There's a- also other factors that that go with that. So, uh, mm-hmm. so then what happened after that when, you know, you guys started through that process?
3: I feel like I learned every lesson there was to learn about um, kind of the hurdles in living kidney donation through this process. So myself and my original intended recipient were actually not a blood match. But Johns Hopkins and a number of other centers do specialize in incompatible kidney transplants where, you know, if the chances of getting a deceased donor organ are not that great and they don't have other options for compatible living donors, um, in some circumstances, they can make it so that a incompatible kidney transplant gives that person a chance at receiving an organ. And that was the plan with me and my original intended recipient, unfortunately, he passed away before I could complete the evaluation. Um, he, he passed away the day after Thanksgiving. Uh,
1: so <laughs> So instead of like most people, you know, okay, <laughs> yeah. I've hit the end of the line, I'm, I'm deflated. Uh, you then continued on and altruistically donated and said, okay, you know there's others that uh, that may need. So tell me what went through your mind, you know, from, but, from, from that yeah. and what a way
3: to honor your friend.
1: My right. goodness.
3: Well it's interesting because a lot of people kind of get to that part because that's what they've seen in the in the news articles. I just want to say that I actually tried two more times to direct the donation because I did want to know what, what happened to the kidney. I did want to have a chance to know the recipient. Um, However, it was suggested by Johns Hopkins that, you know, to maximize the best transplant outcome and who am I to argue with them, (laughs) that I should let them pick somebody who is going to be a a good match. And and since this was the first, we might as well make it a, a compatible kidney transplant. And again, I had wanted to do this for a number of years, so it didn't. It didn't take too much convincing, mostly because that was the only option I had left. But
0: <laughs> Well, and they seem to know what they're doing, Nina, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I love it. Now, let's talk about, uh, if you could, how you acquired um, HIV. So um, you're 35 now. When was the transplant? When did you donate?
3: The kidney in March of this year.
0: March of 2019. All right. So take us back um, to when you acquired HIV. Walk us through that.
3: That was, that was a very long time ago. Yes. Um, and <laughs> Uh, I was a six-week-old infant when I um, received a blood transfusion to treat anemia of prematurity. And um, we actually did not know that because this preceded HIV testing, HIV testing wasn't available until 1985. Mm-hmm. And then FDA did not mandate the screening of blood until 1987. And so I was just kind of, before everything got standardized to what we know now about blood safety. Um, I was just kind of, kind of unfortunately somebody who did acquire HIV uh, and I don't really think too much of it because again just like organs and tissues. I needed that blood to survive. So Mm -hmm. it did save my life. It it did put me in a quite an unorthodox trajectory and where I actually did not know I was living with HIV for eight years. Ah. So I wasn't, I wasn't diagnosed until age eight. And so uh, when I say that Harvey, Louisiana is the last place I lived my assumedly HIV negative life, Ah, um, that that is true. And shortly, shortly after I was living in New Jersey when I was diagnosed. And so uh, we knew that being eight years old, you know, so- something must have fallen through the cracks. And it turned out that the U.S. military, because I come from a Navy family, knew for two years before I was diagnosed that my donor from 1983 had tested positive for HIV and failed to notify my family in a timely manner. And so the way that I was diagnosed was that I was having surgery um, for my eyes in 1991, and the preoperative paperwork doesn't normally contain HIV testing for patients under the age of 15 at the hospital that I was tested, but somebody mixed up the paperwork, and I got the adult pre-op testing packet, and that's how I was tested, which is a great thing because otherwise there was nothing in childhood to suggest that I was sick, and I would have been like any other young person that that says, you know, I look fine. HIV doesn't look like me.
1: But... In 1991, you know, and and it was actually the year that I graduated high school. I remember that time very well because I think it was that year or the year after that that Magic came out and and Magic Johnson, the basketball player, came out and and announced that he uh, tested positive for HIV. And at the time, it was thought of as a, a death sentence. And then here you are, 35 years later, donated your kidney, and you are healthier than... Most Americans. Oh my goodness.
3: We'll, we'll do the math. It's 27 years. 27.
1: 27 years. I did get
3: a degree from Georgetown in mathematics, so I had to. Had to
0: That's, do.
1: You see. Nice. You know. well,
0: I mean, you just sound so positive and upbeat. And then this story, I'm listening to this and my jaw dropped to the floor It's like you're meant to stand out. You're meant to lead folks. And I think that's kind of what you set out to do, to show the world uh, folks living with HIV are healthy and active and awesome, huh?
3: I I mean, I think it's a a product of where I live, which is, as you all know, in in the southern United States, where attitudes and the survival for people living with HIV is, is is not as great. Um, So for me, this was just an opportunity to really challenge people's perceptions, particularly where where I live. Um, I think folks who live in New England or in the Pacific Northwest or in California, you know, they're not stuck on the 1980s version of HIV. But where I live, where you have lawmakers and press and things like that, this was really an opportunity for me to not only honor my friends' ask for a kidney, but really get people up to speed on This is where we are with HIV science, medicine, and um, organ transplantation.
2: So, Nina, you've mentioned that the HOPE Act uh, legalized transplantation for those living with HIV. I wanted to ask how that may have changed your mindset. I mean, I'm sure it was incredibly liberating and empowering, but also frustrating that something like saving lives through organ donation was incriminating for those living with HIV. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Sure. So I'm actually an an advocate for something known as HIV criminalization reform, which um, is the criminalization of of people living with HIV who know their HIV positive status and engage in behaviors that in the absence of of the preventive measures we know we have today um, would convey a risk for HIV transmission um, that's that's tied to organ transplantation in the, in the sense of these laws that criminalize non-disclosure, um, the majority of them are around that. Um, some do criminalize exposure, very little of them criminalize transmission. Around the same time in 1988, that's when the amendment to the um, National Organ Transplantation Act also put a federal ban on the use of organs from donors diagnosed with HIV. So for me... Uh, living here in Georgia, we do have a law that not only criminalizes non disclosure, there's also another part of the law that will criminalize organ donation um, without disclosure of a known HIV positive status, which is very ridiculous in a sense because it's from 1988 and the last time I checked the calendar it is 2019 and as you all know you know when you sign up for the registry it doesn't ask your HIV status UNOS doesn't collect in their database, somebody's HIV status. And so um, for me, there has been a movement across the country to modernize these laws. Even the US Department of Justice says these laws that criminalize non-disclosure of an HIV status where there's no intent to harm, there's, high, uh, there's like no likelihood of transmission because some of these laws, for example, Georgia, it's a felony for me to spit on a cop, even though we know spit does not transmit. So it's an automatic felony. You get a minimum of five years in prison. <laughs> um,
2: it's coming from it, a total place of stigmatization. And it is. It's out ignorance. of line.
3: <laughs> it's out of line with what we know with science. It's out of line with what right. we know about proper criminal law. And mm-hmm. so this, for me, this organ transplant represented a a way finally for people especially lawmakers to realize like I'm not somebody who's out here trying to bring death I literally gave somebody else life. life yes and I would really appreciate it if if my state did not treat me like this monster that this transplant has shown that I'm not
0: wow and you do have some pretty powerful champions um in your corner, uh, folks who have started to uh, read your story, uh, listen to the podcast that you've been on. Um, But we will talk to Dr. Christine Duran, one of your HIV physicians, Um, these people with this medical milestone helping you uh, to push your your mission forward. What do you think about those people?
3: Um, I, I I felt like a a lot of the experience that I have, both as a person living with HIV, also as a public health professional, as someone who is a a policy advocate and things like that, really prepared me to work with the team at Johns Hopkins. And I was very fortunate that they treated me kind of like a member of the team. And, and we really worked together in terms of, you know, I I see media as some people like it. I'm, I'm very much an introvert, but I know that it um, it's educational to just disclose what happens. So that was my intent with, with, you know not going through not only going through the evaluation and the surgery, but also, you know that, that doing things like this podcast so that people know that it affects real people because that was something that I noticed about uh, the first press conference that Johns Hopkins had that you didn't hear from the patients that had received those organs in 2016 from the first HIV-positive deceased donor. And I knew that it would be important for this milestone that you actually hear from the person who decided to do it. And then it would be like really difficult to discount that, you know, even as a person not living with HIV To me, that that is the bigger message, is that if somebody living with HIV can go ahead and donate a kidney, uh, if you're not living with HIV and you're in fairly good health, that you should be able to do it, too. So that's my hope, is that not only do we get more HIV-positive donors, but it is a bit resource-intensive for those folks, but also people not living with HIV who may... Be having other medical conditions that they're not sure if that makes them qualified for donation and and you guys have said it before don't don't let anything rule you out let let the transplant center work with you and determine if you're uh, a candidate for donation Now
0: wait a minute, ma'am. Have you been listening to this podcast?
1: <laughs> have you? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> because we have Sounds a mutual like have. friend, <laughs> Dorian Alexander, who had him here on The Gifted Life. He taught us how to dance or he tried. To, he tried his best. We're just not dancers, but uh, you're so, not a dancer. So we're curious. Just as you're trying to soak up all this information, uh, any any takeaways besides uh, you know kind of what you just mentioned about donation and education.
3: I mean, I, I just it's funny because people are constantly asking, but have you have you benefited from this? And I said, well, you have to describe benefit because some of those benefits are illegal. And then I, I slightly it is slightly escapes my mind that. Uh, they did find a small kidney stone during the evaluation. And as a result of donation, I, lo- I no longer have it. So that is the one uh-huh. <laughs> the one single <laughs> medical benefit uh, I gave a kidney and a
1: rock. Uh, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs>
0: all right, Nina, we could talk to you all day. You are amazing. We love the work that you're doing. Um, and we love that you're just spreading information. That's what we try to do. Information is key, right?
3: Exactly. And let the good kidneys roll, as as they (laughs) might say in Louisiana.
0: All right. So someone out there is like you and holiday comes up and they don't have anything to do. I think that's how your story started. Um, Where can they email? What can they do? What would you encourage them to do?
3: Sure. They can visit hopetransplants.org and they can send an email to learn more about the clinical trial at Johns Hopkins by sending an email to Hope in Action. That's H-O-P-E-I-N-A-C-T-I-O-N at jhmi.edu.
0: All right, Nina, we appreciate you. Thank you so much, and we hope to talk to you again.
3: Wonderful. Thank you all so much.
0: Up next on the Gifted Life Podcast, Dr. Christine Durand. Now, that... Sounds familiar. She does. Yeah. Been here on the podcast before, right?
1: Yep. Well, she talked about HIV and hep C donors in the past.
0: Yeah. And the HOPE Act. Hi, doctor. How are you?
4: I'm great. and very happy to be back speaking with you all. Thanks for having me.
0: We've been reading a lot about you lately, and we just heard some great things about you from a Miss Nina Martinez, uh, a wonderful woman who's helping to make medical history, right?
4: That's right. She's really the the hero here. You should be Hearing lots more about her than than me, but we are we're just very honored and privileged to have been uh, part of her
1: journey. She is fantastic, and and Doc, you know, I didn't mention it yet. And if you haven't heard our podcast uh, that we spoke to Dr. Christine Durant in the past, she is one of the uh, drivers of the Hope Act. Uh, she's an infectious disease physician at Johns Hopkins. In Baltimore and uh, and she's like I said has pretty much been in the driver's seat of turning the HOPE Act into what was just a policy into what's now life-saving action mm-hmm. and, uh, and and in the past our focus has been deceased donation of course we've been involved at Lopa in Louisiana we've had three uh, donors here mm-hmm. so so I wonder Doc what opened the doors to start looking into uh, living donation as an option
4: Well, the HOPE Act allows both HIV-positive people to be deceased or living donors, and we wanted to start with deceased donation. That was the first trial we put together. Um, And we we opened um, a living donor trial shortly after that. So before we went into this uncharted territory, we really wanted to make sure that it was safe for people living with HIV to become donors. HIV is associated with kidney disease. So many people thought if someone with HIV donates a kidney, are they going to be more likely to develop end stage renal disease themselves and end up on dialysis? So, to understand that better, before we started doing the transplants, we did some research. And Dr. Abby Mazzoli and our group published a paper in the American Journal of Transplantation, which showed yes, there is an additional risk associated with HIV towards developing end stage kidney disease, but it's a small risk and it's an acceptable risk. It's comparable to other things that we allow living donors to have, for example, smoking. And so once we thought that the risk was really small and acceptable, that's when we felt it was safe to start a trial.
0: Okay. And any changes? We, we talk about deceased donors and living donors. So is there any big change with surgery or, or prep um, on your end?
4: I think the biggest um, risk, again, is is to the donor for developing kidney disease over the long term. So what we do differently is we just um, really optimize all the other risks. We look carefully, do they have high blood pressure? We make sure they don't have diabetes. We make sure there are really no other factors that might put them at risk for kidney disease. And in the past, some of our HIV medications were toxic to the kidneys but today with modern antiretroviral regimens that's really not the case and so we, we look carefully to make sure um, the donors and in this case Nina was on an excellent regimen that really wouldn't put her kidneys at any additional risk
1: so a lot of what we're talking about is is what would happen to Nina's one kidney that's you know that she still is living with so a lot of, of uh, the public and, and even uh, those in healthcare, some would think that, well, because she is living with HIV, that she's probably immunocompromised to the point where she might not even be able to survive the whole surgical procedure. So was there any added risk from, from your standpoint uh, as far as just that initial surgical procedure and, and the immediate following?
4: HIV in 2019 is really a different thing than HIV, say, 30 years ago.
1: Mm-hmm. And I know
4: many people still think of it as AIDS, as a death sentence, but we have made such incredible uh, milestones with HIV that it's really a chronic and manageable illness. Um, so Nina was put on treatment very early on, Excellent had excellent care, and is really as healthy as her HIV-negative peers Um and so the the face of HIV has changed dramatically. She did not have any immune Her immune system was very healthy, and these are all factors that um, that we looked for before moving forward with her donation. And
0: and Nina is great because she said, "I just wanted people to know." that this was possible, that we can save these lives. Um, and so you're really kind of pushing the envelope. So um, are you encouraging folks to go to these centers? Because I know Johns Hopkins is, is leading the way. Are we going to see more of this, do you
4: think? We are certainly encouraging people living with HIV to talk to their providers about it. If they have a loved one or a friend that needs a kidney um, who's also living with HIV, they you know, can could come forward to be evaluated as a donor if they want to. And and we have had interest even from um, people who are what we call non-directed donors. So like, Nina, they are stepping forward to give a kidney to someone they don't even know that they haven't even met yet, just as an act of, of altruism.
0: And can you give us uh, just a timeline? You said in 2019, man, things have changed. And that's what we say out in the community, like, wait until tomorrow. Who knows uh, what we're able to do? So kind of give us a a timeline on the HOPE Act to to where we are now.
4: Well, the HOPE Act, um, really the idea for the HOPE Act started in 2010, 2011, um, after Ellen Mueller in South Africa had published the first cases of HIV to HIV kidney transplant and in South Africa, and that inspired Dwayne Segev, a kidney transplant surgeon at Hopkins, and a, and really the whole community to say, you know, we need to allow for this to happen in the United States. Um, so they, they conceived of the HOPE Act. They lobbied Congress. It was passed unanimously in the House and Senate and signed by President Obama in 2013. Um, in 2015, we finally had the federal law changed, and the um, the body, uh, the, the UNOS, which oversees all organ transplantation, they changed their policies to allow for it to happen. So we opened our first study in 2016, and um, then in 2019, we did the, the first living donor transplant.
1: And you, you mentioned uh, in the past that you know i know when we got involved uh, here at lopa there was about i want to say uh, around 100 or so or maybe even less uh donations that had taken place uh so how, where are we right now and 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 where are we with expanding that pool you mentioned liver and kidneys you know but but what about expanding that to uh hearts and lungs
4: yeah so we're we've definitely made some great progress the first two years of hope 2016 and 2017 were early years a little bit slow but in 2018 we really saw a larger expansion of donors and we've now had more than 120 kidney and liver transplants it's amazing we hope that the next step is actually going to be heart and lung transplants initially Um, The Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, when they changed their policies, did not change policy to allow for heart and lung, but we've now just had um, a large discussion about that amongst the transplant community. It was opened up to public comment, and I believe in the next few weeks we should see the, the policy change to broaden even further and allow for HIV to HIV heart and lungs. I think that's coming.
2: And Dr. Duran, um, are there any other benefits that you see for HIV living donation that we maybe haven't discussed yet?
4: Well, I think obviously it's a, a great medical milestone and this gift has has saved a life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think beyond that, it's also a huge milestone in just changing the way people think about people living with HIV and hopefully a step towards decreasing the stigma and the misperceptions that still remain.
0: And the lives saved. My goodness. I always love when you come on. We always learn new information and you're always doing something exciting and groundbreaking. So we appreciate you, Dr. Durand. We hope that uh, we hear from you again on The Gifted Life and um, tell Nina we said hi when you see her.
4: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure.
0: At this point in the Gifted Life podcast, we're going to take a moment for mental health with Miss Sarah.
1: Yeah. In the last couple episodes, you guys heard us talk about self-care. And in today's episode, we'll be talking a little bit more about practicing gratitude.
2: Yeah. So um, like Joey said, we're going to talk about practicing gratitude and how it is a way that we can participate in our self-care. Essentially, you know, when we think about gratitude, it's not In terms of self-care, it's not an attitude, but it's an intentional choice to actively participate in inner dialogue when it comes to what you're grateful for. So what it is for self-care means it's intentionally taking parts of your day and your moments to be grateful in the moment for what you have and what you're able to do.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I I got me some, my my wife bought me some fancy VR goggles uh, for Christmas and one of my favorite pastimes, especially at night when I start relaxing, is to meditate. And And my favorite meditation exercise is the one about practicing uh, gratitude. And I, I recognize myself during the day thinking about the things that are that have been done for me that, you know, normally I'm like, yeah, that's great. You know, it's good. Mm-hmm. But then actively mm-hmm. practicing gratitude is is a little bit different in that you recognize you it really forces you to to think about what everyone is doing what how how you know maybe maybe your job maybe your friends and family and all that and the, the different things that they add to your life
2: right it's you know it's reworking our like i said internal dialogue so instead of just passively participating in your life it's actively recognizing what you the abilities you have um, what you're capable of and what's been given to you to actively say thank you and to feel grateful.
0: Yeah, and, and that kind of sets the tone for my day. I'm a mama bear, got a lot of lot of little ones, so it's constant chaos, especially in the morning trying to get out and make it to a destination. Um, so as we back out, we we touch on all of those things: the people that we're going to be surrounded by that day, the home that protected us from the rain this morning, and and different kinds of things. And it, it just we're we're so stressed and we're running and that kind of sets the tone like we're going to be happy we're grateful it's going to be a great day right
2: so and kinda, can, yeah you, see that and you can incorporate it into things that are in your daily routine so if you exercise daily or three times a week incorporating into that makes it real so when you're exercising taking just a moment to say i'm thankful for the ability to even be here at this time and to have a functioning healthy body
1: and whipping th- people at crossfit and things like that <laughs> yes <laughs> but but you i know. wave
0: at the gym when i pass by <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and, and but what you're saying to to that point is if it, when i find myself not really focusing it's easy to fall into a kind of a negative train of thought right. you know oh, because yeah. as you said so often you have so much going yeah. on you've got yeah. the kids and you're trying to you know wrangle all of them together and keep them all in the right direction and it's easy to fall into the little things. Oh, I can't believe, you know, he spilled this or she did this. So yeah, yeah. but but when you kind of refocus your your attention mm-hmm. to those positive things mm-hmm. and 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 that are truly grateful, yeah. you know, for everything that you've got. It right. it just it really like you said, it completely resets and and sets a yeah. tone for a better day.
2: Yeah, because yeah. let's face it, life's hard. So it's if we can just like put one little thing each day that we're grateful for, I think it can improve our inner dialogue to focus on, like you said, the more positive, helpful things in our life.
0: Yeah, because one thing would go wrong. And then the rest of the day, don't don't you talk to me? Don't exactly. you even think about coming over here. <laughs> and so I had to, to rework that right. So self-care, it's, yep. it's absolutely uh, yep.
2: self care, <laughs> which is helping us improve and be more successful. So if you are looking for a way that you can start practicing gratitude, there are of course there's an app for everything nowadays. Mm-hmm. Especially my favorite, which is the Gratitude app, which sends you daily quotes of positivity and success, as well as lets you log something each day that you're grateful for.
0: I like that, Miss Sarah. Thanks so much. We're grateful for you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today's hero, Randy Parent.
1: Yeah, we received this from his family. Randy was 58 years old when he passed from a heart condition. He was a loving husband, father, and grandfather. He left a fish in his pond we had on our property. He will be missed dearly, but he is in a better place where we plan on meeting him.
2: And now we pause and say thank you to Randy for the gift of life.
0: question and answer segment today a little different guys Um, so often in the community uh, we talk about preferred language when it comes to donations So when we train our volunteers when we're giving presentations uh, for example we prefer to use recover versus harvest right Um, so we were wondering after talking to Nina who was great right Nina's Mm -hmm. uh, interview in this podcast um, if there was preferred language to address the stigma
2: for people living with HIV and guess what There is. There is. (laughs) So we went ahead and reached out to one of our local experts, Mr. Dorian Alexander, who provided us a resource for using preferred language to address stigma. So we're going to make it available on thegiftedlife.org or in our show notes.
1: And we want to hear more from you. Uh, Please email if you have a question to info at thegiftedlife.org or you can also give us a call. That number is 504-648-3477. We may even play your message on a podcast.
0: And that'll do it for this episode of The Gifted Life. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Yeah, special thanks to Nina Martinez and Dr. Christine Duran for sharing in their story, and especially Nina's story of being the first HIV to HIV living kidney donor.
2: The best place to find us, guys, on our website, thegiftedlife.org. Listen there and find links to listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. If you do listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five star rating. It really helps others find our podcast.
1: Absolutely. Don't forget about rating us. And if you're on social media, like our page on Facebook the Gifted Life Podcast, and follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod.
0: Good information coming at you there. And hopefully, um, together, we inspired you to register to be an organ tissue and eye donor. If so, registerme.org. That's the place you go, the one-stop shop, guys. And thank you for being part of our team. Go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Until next time. Mm. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Caraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez.